in order to understand the third blessing, which I don't know if you heard it, but it is there in the midst of chapter 16 of Revelation, we have to understand what surrounds it. And in order to understand the context really of what surrounds it, we have to understand what leads up to chapter 16, the third beatitude of Revelation, chapter 16 and verse 15. And so we're going to do a fairly quick overview of many chapters of Revelation to start. And so I hope that you will hang with me as we do this. We're going to begin in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And really in Revelation chapters 8 and 9 is where we see the the first plagues actually that are mentioned in the Bible. But these plagues aren't associated with bowls of wrath being poured out. They're associated with what we refer to as the seven trumpets. And chapters 8 and 9 have the first six trumpets and then the seventh trumpet is pushed down later into chapter 11. But the trumpet sounds and events, activity takes place here on the earth. We see them as, as plagues, as symbols of, of judgment, as consequences for actions. But in these moments, these consequences of judgment, there is also, as the trumpets are sounding, they are mixed with mercy. The, the things that are happening in the midst of the trumpets are, are God is hoping that these activities will, will help us to see how wicked this world is and lead our hearts to respond and to, to turn back to him and to seek him and his covering and his shelter. He's doing this because soon there will be a time when, when people can no longer repent. And we'll mention that in a minute, minute more. This is the first set of plagues. These plagues being the trumpets blowing and these plagues coming forth, but, but God's still making his appeal to humanity to return to him, to come to him. Then we jump ahead to Revelation chapter 12. And Revelation chapter 12 is depicting Satan's attempts to pursue and destroy, not uh, to destroy Jesus and all of those that would follow Jesus throughout history. This is Revelation 12, this kind of sweeping view from, from the time of Jesus' birth all the way until the second coming. This, this broad picture of what Satan is trying to do. Every move that Satan makes is to try to destroy your life and to harm you and to lead you away from Jesus. The things in this world that, are, that seem so attractive, many of those things are, are Satan's attempts to try to lead our young people, to lead the adults away from Jesus. We move forward then in Revelation chapter 13, it, it, it zooms in on a portion of history, just like uh, Genesis chapter 1 is kind of a broad overview of the creation story, and then Genesis chapter 2 narrows in on a specific portion of the creation story. So too, Revelation chapter 12 is, is more broad, and then, and then Revelation chapter 13 zooms in on a portion of history we would often refer to as the end of times. And in Revelation chapter 13, we see Satan, who's referred to as a dragon, using earthly powers and earthly institutions, including religious ones and political ones, to lead people into false worship. And he's, he's, he's making this pitch, he's, he's, he's making this, this play for, for people to come and to follow these false, this false worship and false teachings. Making a, an appeal for people to, to disregard some of God's commands and to disregard the scriptures and say, you know what, these things no longer matter, let's, let's put them aside. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4 tells us that, that 
these institutions and the devil has some success. The Bible says, so they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. The beast is one of those earthly institutions. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And those that do not worship this beast power, this representative of Satan, are persecuted. They're persecuted. And now they bring in a political system to help them with this persecution. Revelation chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. And he, in this now time, is speaking of the lamb-like beast, a, a political figure that is in this earth. And he, this, this lamb-like beast, which is a political nation uniting the spiritual institution with the, with the political institution. The Bible says, deceives those who dwell on the earth. Those... Uh, those earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So these, these institutions are working together to, to kill, to destroy those people that are saying, I'm not going to follow after these powers of Satan. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. So Satan, through these institutions, is making an appeal. And if anyone doesn't follow after that appeal, doesn't worship uh, Satan through these various means and doesn't, isn't led away from the truth, they are persecuted. They're killed. They receive this mark on their forehead or on their hands. And remember this again, folks, as Pastor Andrea said, the mark is not a literal mark. It's not the chip in your credit card, all right? It's not your social security number. No one secretly snuck into your house and injected you with something in the neck and you have something going around there, all right? Uh, no born identity, any of those things, type of things. This is, this is simply displaying the mark is what you're brain has decided to embrace, and the mark on the hand symbolizes the actions that show who your true alliance is towards, as Pastor Andrea said. So this is chapter 13. There's this appeal to worship and to participate in this false worship. But at the same time this is happening, there's this other appeal that is taking place, and that's Revelation chapter 14, which Pastor Andrea talked about last week, what we refer to as the three angels' messages. And these three angels' messages are coming from God, and, and, and yes, they're about witnessing, and yes, they're about warning the world, and yes, they're about, about identifying a Babylon and all these various things, but, but, but most importantly, as Pastor Andrea said last Sabbath, the, the heart and the center and the, 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 the focus of Revelation 14 is this, that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And that is the center and the focus of this message. And so there's this power saying, if you don't follow me, you'll be persecuted. You'll, 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 be, you'll be killed. Follow after this truth. And, and Jesus is appealing and saying, this is the truth. Stay with me. Stay with me. And there's these two, this battle going on in these two appeals. One is an appeal by Satan and, and, and his minions and, and, and the institutions of humanity, of falsehood. And another is an appeal through the angels and through the people of God. It's an appeal for us to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. And we know that some choose 
to follow the ways of false worship. But there are others that choose no matter what's going on in the world and no matter what society is pressuring them on, they will follow the lamb wherever he goes. And the evidence of this, the Bible tells us, are people who are defined by having the testimony of Jesus, faith in Jesus, and people who keep the commandments of God, even as they're being told not to do so. But then at some point after this, these these two messages are going forth. One, an appeal to false worship. One, an appeal to true worship. One, an appeal to follow after a fake God. And one, an appeal to follow after the one true God. One, an appeal to to believe the lies of this world. And another, to believe the truth. One is a a false love and the other is is a true love. There's these two appeals going on. And at some time after this, something happens. Something takes place, and it's, it's something that we used to talk about more in church, but we don't mention it very much in church anymore. It might be something you all have maybe never even heard of, but I can guarantee you many of these people have, have heard of it out here. And I can understand why we don't talk about it as much because of the way it has been talked about historically. It's this thing that we refer to as probation closing. Do any of you remember hearing that when you were younger? Probation closing. Some of you are nodding and your faces are frowning more. You might be worried about what I'm going to say. What does probation closing mean? It simply means this, that just prior to Jesus coming, just prior to Jesus coming, after the persecution, after the angels have delivered their message, everyone on this earth that is able to make those decisions will have made a decision for or against Jesus. For or against truth. For or against true worship versus false worship. Everyone will have made a choice. Now I want to say this. It is about a choice that we make. Some of you were taught that probation closes because God got your name in the alphabet and boom, you're out. I remember my dad telling me stories that he heard these things that like God's going through the alphabet and as God gets to your name... If you've done anything wrong and you haven't repented of it, history for you. Folks, that is not in the scriptures. And my dad grew up terrified because he didn't know if God was going by first name, (laughs) his name's Daryl, or last name, his name's Stuart. He really hoped that God would go by middle names. His middle name is Wayne. That's way down at the end of the alphabet. He didn't know. Folks, probation is not some arbitrary thing where God's just saying, okay, now I'm cutting you off. It's that everyone has made a choice either for or against God. God gives us this, this, and there's going to come a moment in time. In the book of Romans, what does the book of Romans tell us? The book of Romans tells us that, that, that God eventually gave up humanity to their own choices. To their own choices. And we all have a choice And at some point, we we make a choice either for God or against God, and we've made it so deeply in our heart that it is sealed in there. And that is probation closing. It's just like some of you parents, that you see your kids making choices, especially as your kids get a certain age. At this point, let's still help them with those choices, but at a certain age, kids make choices, and you wish you could go in there and change and make every choice for them but you can't they've made their choice 
And we have a loving God that's the same way. It says, I allow them to make their choice. And this is all symbolized, this, this close of probation is symbolized at the, in, in Revelation chapter 15. And it is symbolized like this in Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues for the, in them, the wrath of God is complete. In other words, this is it. This is the, the end. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory, so there are people that are victorious over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And remember, that number is not anything other than the symbol of what has been committed to in our hearts and our actions. But this is describing the people of God victorious. Victorious. Not because the final judgment has taken place, and, uh, not because, they're, I mean, Jesus has come back, but, but they're still living in this world, and yet they are victorious. Notice how the chapter begins. Seven angels, seven bulls, which were in them the wrath that is the final consequences. Those wrath, that wrath is the final consequences of choosing this world and the things of this world, choosing air over, over truth, choosing the lies of Satan over the love of Jesus. The final consequences for making that choice. But those bowls haven't been poured out just yet, the Bible tells us. Yet there are people here being described who are victorious over the beast and over the lies of Satan. And then these people who chose to let Jesus be their savior, who chose Jesus' ways over man's ways, who chose surrender over self, the Bible tells us they sing a song, and Pastor Costin read that. The song is a prophetic song that, that testifies of God's end-time people having the assurance of salvation. Some of you also were ta taught that you can't have assurance. I apologize that you have been taught these things. They sing a song of assurance, and Jesus hasn't come yet. And then the scene shifts, and the Bible tells us this, and the temple of God is open, and the seven angels with the seven bowls, which are the seven plagues of God's wrath, they come out of heaven, they come out of the temple. And then verse 8, it's a short chapter in Revelation, it closes this short chapter with the imagery that shows us probation has closed. Imagery that illustrates that everyone has made a decision for Jesus or for this world. The Bible tells us in verse 8, of chapter 15, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Symbolically, what takes place in this temple, what takes place in this sanctuary? Hebrews teaches us in chapter 7, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. This is speaking of Jesus. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But here's the truth, folks. One day, people will stop drawing near to God. Those who have drawn near to him will stay near to him. And those who have pushed God away will, will continue to push him away. And then the temple will close. Not because God said, I don't love you anymore, not because God said, I don't want you anymore, but because this world has become so polarizing. Have you heard that word recently? We're so polarized. 
Because this world will have come so polarized that even in this, even in the way we think and act, we have been chosen right or we've chosen wrong. We've chosen Jesus' love and sacrifice or Satan's lies and manipulation. The angel of Revelation the angel in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11 describes the, the true groups of the people in the last days in this way. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. There's two groups. There's people that have been doing evil, and they will stay doing evil. There's people who have been doing right, and they will still do right. They've chosen. All decisions will be made, and this is the event being described in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8. And then we see another seven plagues. But these seven plagues that Costin just read about are not mingled with an appeal for repentance. The plagues are now judgment. They're now ultimate consequences of a society, of a world, of people choosing the false god, Satan, over the one true God. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1 again. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores come, came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out its bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In these first five plagues, does the language remind you of anything that we just studied not too long ago? Any other part of scripture? It's very similar to the book of Exodus. And here's an interesting thing. We look at things from our worldview and the context in which we live. But this was written to a first century people saw things a little differently than us. Also some people who really understood aspects of this Old Testament, this prophetic line, this chain, this connection through the scriptures. And to maybe some of them, this imagery would actually be imagery of deliverance. Imagery of, of hope. Even as there's all these trials and chaos going on around them, there's, there's some, some hope there. We can read it as only doom and gloom. And it is doom and gloom for those stand, not standing with Jesus. But John was writing it also to remind people that, that the thing that followed the plagues is deliverance for God's people. You're going through trial, there's deliverance coming. You're having a rough time in your family, there's deliverance coming. You're, you're, you're emotionally distraught, there's deliverance coming. There's a plague falling upon your home right now, there is deliverance coming. The language shows us just as though it was with the Egyptians. That rather than any of this convicting them, they hardened their hearts against God due to these plagues. In the same way, these people, they've already made their choice. And so, and so rather than any of this drawing them towards God, they just push God away even more. It will not change their minds. They've worked so long against God 
that they know nothing else, and now they continue that path. Then the sixth angel pours out its bowl, and it actually combines not only the symbolism of the plagues in Exodus, it also, combine, it also brings about symbolism from the book of Daniel. The sixth angel, verse 12 of chapter 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Those three things, the, the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, those are the same three powers that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 13, just with a different imagery. The beast, the lamb-like beast, and the dragon. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. But when I read that, it sounds horrible, but I also see even in that passage some language of deliverance. I read in there that the, the Euphrates River dried up and it draws my mind back to a story that I remember learning in Sabbath school many years ago. A story from the book of Daniel in which there was a king that was all about himself and a king that was all about this world and he was partying and having a good time and an invisible hand shows up and writes on the wall. Do you remember what it wrote? Many, many Tekel Paris or Uparsin or however your Bible will say it. It's a little bit different in different versions. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. It was a warning that the destruction was coming, that Babylon was going to be taken away from the Babylonians and given into other hands. It was also a warning. It was the beginning, even though we didn't realize it at the moment, of deliverance for God's people. You see, the Israelites had been in captivity in Babylon under the Babylonians. And they thought they were, the Babylonians thought they were indestructible because they had this great and powerful city. But running through that city was a river, the Euphrates River. And there was a couple of kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians, and they had worked their way up above to the east side where that Euphrates River ran. And they began to divert that river. And that river began to get shallower and shallower and shallower till it dried up. And that very night, the Bible tells us, the Medes and the Persians with their kingdoms came in from the east on that Euphrates River, that dry bed of the Euphrates River, and they conquered. They took away Babylon from the Babylonians. And this was the beginning of the deliverance of God's people in which they would get to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild and restore their temple and their kingdom. So what is God telling us here? Man, there's these plagues, there's these frogs, there's these demonic signs going on. But God's saying, remember though, when the Euphrates River dries up, deliverance is coming. Deliverance is coming. So here John is again referencing a deliverance story from the Bible. Horrible things are happening, and they are. But God is about to deliver his people. Folks, horrible things are happening in our world right now. I mean, I was, I was listening yesterday what's happening in the Bahamas, and, and now there's another storm bearing down on them. All of our hearts and our prayers should be with them, and we should be doing what we can. I know some of our members even have, have gone down to help with various things. There are terrible things happening in our world. There's terrible things happening that we can see and that we know about, and there's terrible things that we don't see and we don't know about. 
There are terrible things that are happening in your lives, maybe in your own heart, in your own mind. There's struggles that you're having. These are some terrible things that are happening that are going on. But even as we read this about a time when decisions will all have been made, right now God wants to draw us and say, deliverance is still available. Deliverance is still available. So John is referencing this, this story of great calamity, but, but reminding God's people that in those days when all this calamity, because things are going to get worse, folks, they're not going to get better. God is reminding them that still, even in the midst of that, he is about to deliver. And it brings us to the third beatitude in the book of Revelation. And I want to slow down just a little bit here. Because there is a sudden turn in the focus of chapter 16. It's a brief turn, chapter 16 and verse 15. Because immediately afterwards it returns to that final seventh plague. But this brief pause is Jesus speaking. And I appreciate it, Costin, the way you slowed down and you read that. In the midst of all this turmoil, there's this voice. Jesus speaks. And while all this focus has been on the wicked and what is happening to the wicked, Jesus speaks and reminds us that even in the midst of this, this, this great chaos that is going on in the earth, that there are some that are actually not suffering in the midst of that. There are some that are at peace. There are some that, that, are, that, are, that are covered. There, there are some that are blessed. I was trying to figure out how this, how this worked out, and I, I was speaking with Dr. Mueller, and, and when I was discussing this worth, worth, verse with him, he said, you know how sometimes in stories there's these flashbacks to kind of give us context of who these people are and what's happened in their lives? He said, this is like a flashback. And I thought about the... Uh, the movie uh, Les Miserables, or however you say it. I can't speak French, so I'm not going to try. Uh, you remember that movie? Any of you seen it? So if you, you guys are like first service. You're scared to admit you've seen a movie in here. It's okay. Um, it's the plagues? No, okay. Um, but in this movie, you, there's flashbacks where you learn about the characters, right? It's going along and you realize, why is this character in this position? Or why is this character scared of this person? Oh, there's a flashback and you learn the context of who that person is. That's kind of what's happening here in the Bible. There's this flashback. Who are these people that are blessed and, and how are they blessed? And, and we, we flash back to this, to this moment and we see, how did those people, in the midst of all this chaos, how is there still this blessed people? It's based on what Jesus says we can see. Jesus calls out and he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The statement, Behold, I am coming like a thief, is, of course, a direct reference to many places in Scripture. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus' own words in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus' own words in the Gospel of Matthew, therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day that your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if, he, if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. 
Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. This idea of thief is, is that it's going to be rapid. There's this book I read. It's called The Great Controversy. And in that book, there's this, there's this phrase that the last events will be rapid ones. And I believe that. I agree with that, that these, these last events are going to be rapid ones. Because who could survive all these plagues, all this turmoil? How could the earth even survive all this turmoil if they were not rapid ones? And Jesus, throughout Scripture, has told us, I'm coming like a thief. In other words, so you need to be ready. You need to be watching. You need to be waiting. And in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, we see that these people, the reason why they're blessed is because they've stayed awake, they've been watching, they've been alert to what is happening around them. They've not said, well, in a couple years, I'm going to figure this out. They're keeping their eyes, they're keeping their watch. They're saying, today is the day to choose for the Lord. Blessed, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In the midst of all the plagues and all the destruction and all the chaos, there will be a people, amazingly, that are blessed. Who are they? They are the ones that believe the scriptures, that they should keep watch. They were the ones that believed that today is the day to be ready, because we do not know when Jesus is coming, because we do not know when sudden illness may come upon us, because we do not know when that traffic accident may happen in our lives, because we do not know, and so we stay alert. These people believe Jesus' truth, and so they stayed alert to his coming. And even more importantly than that, they didn't just stay alert. They didn't just know the prophecies. They didn't just know the scriptures. They decided to know Jesus himself. They stayed covered in the garments of Jesus. What are these garments? Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. The Bible tells us, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, so Jesus covers us. The garments, of right, is the garments that are being speaking of here, spoken of here are the righteousness of Jesus. How can I stand in the last days? I can't, but Jesus can. Are any of these kids perfect? A couple of them raise their hands. They haven't learned yet. There is none perfect, no, not one, and neither are you. So how can I be perfect and be blessed in the last days only through Jesus? Not because I'm smarter than everybody. Not because I was raised in the right church. Not because I went to church on the right day. Not because I understood the book of Revelation. Only as I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior and made him first, last in everything in my life do I have the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is the garments of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus stood for me and he stood for you. And he stood for all of you long before we ever stand for him. And that's how I'm able to stand in those last days. When the whole world is crumbling, when probation is closed, I can have the blessed assurance because I know that long ago I said, Jesus, be my everything. Let me say it like this. In the last days, there will come a point in history well, everyone will have made their decision for or against Jesus. And at that point, rapidly, the events of the earth will be tossed into great calamity. And the only ones that will be at peace in the midst of that calamity 
are those who have chosen to surrender everything to Jesus, who have said to Jesus, forgive me of my sins, make me a new person, who have said to Jesus, today I don't have the power to stand, so you stand for me, who have said to Jesus, I am out of control, so I'm putting you in control, Jesus. The people who have made a firm commitment, and then no matter what crisis is going on around them, no matter what crisis is going on in their life, because of the power of Jesus and Jesus alone, they are able to stand. When they're faced with their greatest catastrophe, no matter what is happening, they are able to stand because they have accepted Jesus. When you go through your life, and your life, unfortunately, young people, is just going to get more challenging. The only way to stand is if you have Jesus in your hearts. It's the only way. But we have to make a decision. And when we make that commitment to Jesus, he does something in us. He helps us to be strong, even in the most trying of circumstances. In 1967, my grandfather left a note at his workplace. It said, don't look for me. You won't find me. I'm never coming back. This note was delivered to my grandma. My grandfather was working down in Southern California. My grandma was up in Central California. She lived in a cinder block house. My dad was 16 years old, in the, working in the fields of California and going to Armona Union Academy. They got this note. My grandfather disappeared. This was the age, folks. You guys don't understand this because you can look up anybody's nonsense online now. But this was the age of no internet. There was no chips in credit cards because we didn't have credit cards. There was, I shouldn't say we. I wasn't even as old as some of these folk out here. It was, it was just an age. You couldn't find people. You could actually disappear, and that's what he did. They hired private investigators. They couldn't find him. 1967, 21 years later, December of 1988, we're getting ready to go to my, my uh, sister's uh, band concert. And we're getting ready to go, and my dad gets a phone call, and it's my uh, cousin, it's my dad's cousin, Donna Jean, and she calls him and she said, Daryl, we found your dad. He contacted us and he wants to come home. We go to the band concert and I remember that night my dad tried to sit but he couldn't sit and he just paced outside the whole night. I remember him not sleeping, I remember him pacing through the house, pacing in the backyard, going for a walk. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Called his one of his brothers, his middle brother, told him about it. What should we do? They decided we're going to call mom and ask her. My dad called my grandma and he said, Mom, we found dad and he wants to come home. And my, my dad has told me that without hesitation, my grandma said, go and get your father and bring him home to us. Years later, I asked my grandma, I said, how could you do that? He left you. And she said, because I made a vow to God, I made a vow to him to always love him, and I never stopped praying every day that he would come home. How can you face the most, the largest crisis and decision in your life and without hesitation say, I'm going to stand for the commitment that I made only through the power of Jesus. Only through the power of Jesus. And by the way, you can flip that around. 
And you know what Jesus says to all of us? We say, man, I've been gone forever from Jesus, or I've been doing all this, I've been doing all that. Jesus says, I made a commitment long ago to love you, to care for you, and to never stop praying for you. And so come home, come home. In the last days, it's going to get worse, and everyone will have made a decision. There's no time to say, let's wait to make a decision. Choose you this day whom you will serve, and live in the blessed assurance that you can stand in the midst of the greatest trials you'll face.